Hello and welcome to our third episode of Demystifying Politics, the podcast where we help young people get involved in politics. Today's topics on the news are obviously the unfortunate demise of Prince Philip, second topic that Biden is looking to expand the Supreme Court, and finally there was an, uh, the attack on the uh, nuclear facility in Iran and its implications for the wider region. Finally, our big question of the day is will be will the Iran deal ever come back. Nathan, do you want to start us off? Of course. On Friday the 9th of April, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, passed away at Windsor Castle just a few months before his 100th birthday. This news was met with sadness across the country and across the world. Though there was some criticism of his life's work. What does his death mean for the national scene? Dev, so what were your initial reactions to the news? Obviously, sadness, uh, a little bit of disbelief, because honestly, I thought they would live forever. Um, um, but yeah, I think he was obviously, um, he was obviously, you know, a very, a pretty decent man, did a lot of good charity work. Uh, when it comes to the criticism of him in terms of his like comments, I mean, I think half of them were jokes and then half of them were, I think, you know, relics of a time long gone if you know what i mean you know he was born in like the 1920s so we can't really expect him to be like absolutely politically correct to the dot um but i you know i i don't think i, I genuinely don't think he was he was racist in any way so yeah i think sadness uh in terms of wider implications for the monarchy not too much the only thing i can see really happening um is maybe a slight pushback from some people, because obviously because of his death, the BBC's now had like six or well now had like seven or eight days of just wall to wall coverage of Prince Philip. That might just annoy some people. It'd be like, oh well, this is like, and some people have compared it to like North Korea, but I think that's a bit extreme. But some people might be a bit, a bit annoyed that for seven days we're like almost respecting a man, you know, un- unnecessarily. So that's the only real pushback I can I can see happening from this. Obviously, in the 21st century, Britain is one of the only remaining monarchies in the world. Should we make such a big deal of the death of, of a monarch, or should we treat it as of the death of any other celebrity? Yeah, I think I think uh, with the monarchy, like Britain is a very normal country, and the only like kind of weird thing, the only like spicy thing, if you know what I mean, about it is you know our, our monarchy. I think that's what interests a lot of countries. In fact, which is why we get so much tourist money. Um, from, from the US and from, and from Europe, because the Americans care more about the royal family than, than we actually do ourselves. Um, because, you know, for them, it's their government is, it's a president. It's like very democratic, secular, whatnot. And the, they've almost lost the grandiose of having a monarchy. Now, of course, there's, there's I think there's arguments, very good ones as well uh, for abolishing it. But the, uh, the grandeur, like the kind of, the almost awe-inspiring nature of the monarchy itself, kind of, that's what makes a lot of people come. I, I personally think, yeah, I think the idea of a monarchy is quite outdated, but I do see the the, the attracting factor. And I think this is, this is one of the times, it's, it's not too bad. I mean, how many other countries 
a, a person pretty famous dies and now every news presenter has to wear black. The BBC is in Iran to wear, play like inoffensive music. And then like we have like wall to wall coverage. Like, I mean, I, can, I, I kind of think it's, like, it's, it's slightly cool. It's one of the few good things about the monarchy. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the monarchy as an idea itself is, is a bit outdated. What do you think? Well, I have quite a few comments on this. So the death, so Prince Philip, as many of you will know, fought in the Royal Navy in World War II at between pretty much the ages of 18 and 21. So very young man fighting in the largest, in one of the largest wars in human history. Uh, he's sort of the face of a country that is now leaving us. We, we can definitely, we definitely have relics of the fact that World War II happened. I mean, buildings were rebuilt. We have the NHS because of it. We have the, the welfare state because of it. But nearly everyone that was of that generation has died or is dying. And Prince Philip has gone with them. Now, Prince Philip is also, the death of Prince Philip also means the end of the sort of era in which uh, leaders were military, were actual military figures. So I'm sure we, we've all learned in our history classes about men like Henry VIII and William I, who went out onto the battlefield, fought in wars for glory, and by their standards for God. Prince Philip also was a military man, a midshipman with the very lowest rank for his two lieutenants during over the course of the world war. And that to many people that makes him a hero. Yeah. Now nowadays, obviously, we live in a much more peaceful world. And many would say, well, it's a good thing we don't have war anymore. But it will be strange to no longer so explicitly associate the royal family with uh military prowess and military acumen yeah i was just gonna say that i think it makes a few people a bit nostalgic for like the times of alexander the great napoleon uh, you know all these all-out conquering great warlords so they're not warlords that's, that's a bad one great men of war who went out and went into the field inspired their men and and went on like imperialist conquests i do think that that, that time is gone now and while that was like a a great part of our history. I, I do think it's it's a part of our history that that's now gone and we've become more civilized. But I, I do admit that there is a certain like nostalgia for, for the days when we had great men of great of, of, of great like will and, and intelligence and strength who would go out themselves into the battlefield and, and conquer for, for king and for country. So yeah, I think that that's there is a bit of nostalgia for, for that. Well, do you think there's any sort of replacement for that then uh because otherwise what what purpose does the military serve if they're no longer military commanders what what are they there for i think i think with the military i think with as war uh, as, as as all out there's obviously wars that in around the world you see there's plenty in, in the middle east i think as, as large-scale war quietened down especially in europe and the west i think the military takes on a role that is the um, you know, a, a less role, an inferior role in, in domestic politics. And I think, you know, politicians who are elected democratically then take on a more significant importance. So whereas previously we were like a bunch of warring nations or ready to kind of throw his throats out, there's more international solidarity and more um, brotherhood has started to seep in and globalization has started to occur. We've, and I think it's a good thing, by the way, that, that war no, no longer happens. Um, I think the military will take a more inferior role. I think they'll, 
it will become more about soft power and diplomacy um, and how uh, and imperialism will go into its next stage. So what I, what I mean by that is, so think of like the empire of the world. So the British empire was very explicit. They would go to a country and say, it's mine. That is pretty explicit. The US empire was a bit, a bit more like, more hiding like they would what instead they what they would do yeah it was much less explicit i mean there was the occupation of places like the philippines but it was much more occupation via owning companies owning exactly. industry and, owning and agriculture was, exactly what they would do is they would if 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 a you what 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 they would think was that the world they'd have a sphere of influence and if any country elected a leader that wouldn't bow down to the u.s's interest they would just uh, institute a coup to overthrow that government. That happened in plenty of places uh, around the world. Too many to mention. So that's and now China is coming in as its new uh, power, and what they're using as their stage of imperialism is because war is 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 scaling down. They have something called the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby they go to these poor countries, they build their infrastructure. The uh, the, the poor countries now owe them a lot of debt, and now they're kind of beholden to Chinese interests. You can you can see this like when all the Uyghur Muslim that sort of outrage was happening, like sixty African and like Pakistan and all these like poor countries where China had been building infrastructure, they all signed a letter being like, "Yeah, we shouldn't blame China about the Uyghur Muslims thing. It's nothing to worry about." So you can always yeah, see lots of people were confused as to why uh, Muslim nations, <laughs> yeah, supposedly were on the side of China who were oppressing Muslims. But yeah, it's the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been called neocolonialism by some. They don't believe that it's in good faith and they believe that it's uh, akin to, say, the, Brit- the British involvement in, in India. Yeah, and I think what's, what's, what's basically going to happen now is we're going to replace these. What's going to happen is the world's going to go away from war and we're going to have more like implicit warfare, but whereby it's more like soft power and diplomacy and like allyships and NATO and whatnot. And then also cyber warfare will become, as we'll talk about later actually this week, cyber warfare will take on an, an even more enhanced and important role. I'd actually just like to challenge the idea that um, the sort of demo- democratic absolutism. So I think in the past, I'd say 70 years or so with the end of fascism, and then in the 90s with the end, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, liberal democracy has sort of come to the forefront of the world particularly the west as the only viable political ideology so any sort of ideology that either that disregards public opinion or that uh find draws its power from something else than uh voting every four or five years is seen as irrelevant authoritarian unworkable is that really the best way through because it's not as if liberal democracy is perfect you've definitely had uh, political, social, and economic problems over the past twenty or thirty years. So, do you think democracy is to be deified? Do you think are there any potential problems you see with liberal democracies? I think it's the answer is two pronged here. I think you're right in terms of there are successful authoritarian uh, countries around the world, and to say that there aren't would be foolish to say so. Singapore, for example, has. An authoritarian government, one party state, zero freedom of speech, not much political freedoms, but everyone's extremely happy because the standard of, li- of living is extremely high. Another example of this would be China, whereby they, they, they pair capitalism and economic growth with an authoritarian government. And some are seeing this as like the perfect, the perfect mix. What, what I would say is I think you can have like the economic growth and uh, the, the raising of, of living standards within a democracy. And so I personally would, would prefer democracy because I think 
yes, democracy is completely imfect. Um, as Winston Churchill once famously said, uh, you know, um, the best argument against democracy is a conversation with the average voter, um, which I, I completely agree. I think democracy, the ways we can improve democracy is by having a more educated populace. The more educated the populace, the better democracy will be. So we need to make sure people um, are educated and, and see what their, their votes can be used for. But yeah, I think it, democracy is an imperfect system, but I, I do think it is still a better system than, than the one you see in Singapore or China, because I still think the, you know, the idea, the, the very basic fundamental idea of power to the few people, whereby the state serves the people and not itself is a very powerful one. And I think it's still a very compelling basis on which to build your society. Yeah, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether in future weeks we can further go into discussions about how yeah. much power executive officers should have, how much power legislature should have, how much people, how much power the people should have in general. Should we move on? Shall we move on to our second topic? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I think we, we could have a, a, this question as a big question in the future. So yeah, the second, um, the second one, do you, do you want to introduce Nathan? It's about Biden and, and, and the- Of course. On Friday the 9th of April, Biden uh, order, signed an executive order opening a commission into expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court of the United States is, the, is often called the highest court of the land and it, and it is the final court that decides whether or not, not only cases pass, whether cases passed in lower down courts uh, meet con- standards of constitutionality or whether laws passed by Congress or signed by the president meet standards of constitutionality constitutionality so their intended purpose is to interpret the law and see whether it violates things like freedom of speech or separations of powers or rights to f- free and fair trials and so on now currently the supreme court has nine justices and trump appointed three of them so three of the past nine justices have been appointed by trump most controversially amy coney barrett just before the election so because, and really the, the Supreme Court's always been political, but definitely since Roe v. Wade, it's, it's sort of the political nature of it has been increased. And therefore parties often wish to expand the number of justices so they can appoint their own justices that will uh, impose their idea of what constitutional means onto laws. Uh, Deb, yeah. do you think it's fair of the Biden government to expand the courts? I think with with the the, the um the Biden with the the idea of expanding the Supreme Court, I think there's a lot of progressives that seem to really like this idea, and I find it pretty strange. I think it's actually it's very narrow sighted in terms of what what it thinks. Because yes, of course, the Supreme Court has now become an, a, basically an added legisl- like an added political body now. Unfortunately, under the U.S. Constitution, of course, it's the executive the judicial and the legislative branch with the executive and the legislative branch intended to be the ones that are political and the judicial meant to be independent. Unfortunately, now it's all three that are, that are political. And if you really want to get some proper real change in, in America, you need a majority in the House, super majority in the Senate, majority in the Supreme Court and the, pre- and, and the presidency. If you really want to get a transformational, anything's basically happened. So I think... With if you did were to expand the Supreme Court, let's say uh, Biden added three justices and they go to twelve, well then, because of the nature of American democracy and the two-party state, a Republican president's going to come in 
at some point. Let's say in, in after Biden's second, say 2032, he's going to add a, maybe another three Republicans because then a Democrat will come in. Three, three, three. And they'll become what? We'll end up with like 100 Supreme Court justices. Like where, where does this end? I think nine is a good number because four, four, and then there's a tiebreaker. It's been what's been happening for ages. It's it seemed unwise to uh, and short-sighted to politicize the Supreme Court in this way by expanding the court. I don't know why it's become now for a lot of progressives. It's it's strange to me, a sort of litmus test that all candidates should think about expanding the Supreme Court. I think that, you know, a lot of the times, yes, you do want to um, make sure that the Supreme Court is on your side. So maybe you you can think about something like term limits, that that would make more sense to me or, uh, yeah, you know, a slight more maybe de- de- democratizes the supreme court a bit more like in the 1900s they democratized the the, the the senate but i think honestly expanding it is one of is out of all the reforms they could do this supreme court one of the worst ones maybe they could even consider like as weakening how much power the the judiciary has on overturning laws put put through by congress but apart from that honestly i, I think there's a much more viable reforms and i think expanding the supreme court is is foolhardy from if biden were to do it and it's pretty short-sighted what do you think about it it's important to remember that the uh the idea of the supreme court has sort of been infiltrated and destroyed from almost the very beginning of the republic so initially the supreme court was supposed to have almost no power and it didn't have the power to check laws until uh the until after 1800 so it was about for the first 10 or 15 years, it was just dealing with cases from the lower courts and it wasn't really a lawmaking body in the sense. Then the case of Marsby versus Madison passed. Now, this case was important in that the Supreme Court almost gave itself the power to check on and act as a second legislature. So the political problem has existed and persisted in the Supreme Court for a very long time. Now, another problem is that there are no explicit requirements uh, for Supreme Court justices, and there's very little regulation of the Supreme Court in the Constitution. So it'll be so it'll be so. Whereas with the presidency, you have to be 35 to be a president, 30 to be a senator, 25 to be in the House of Representatives. No such requirement, not for education, not for age, not for residency, exists in the Supreme Court. So technically, a five-year-old in Myanmar could be nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, which gives you some idea. Well, obviously that's not going to happen, but it gives you some idea of how little regulation there was on it. So I think the best idea would be to either to have an amendment capping the number, also uh, an age requirement and and an education requirement. However, I don't think that's going to happen given the uh, adversarial, adversarial nature of electoral politics i think um so i think the educational requirement is probably unnecessary because most of them go to like harvard law school anyway i think like six out of nine have been there um so i think most of them most of them are pretty smart i think yeah i think it, when it comes to judicial review which is what you were referring to whereby the judiciary can overturn a law that deems to be unconstitutional i don't think that's a bad thing i think that's a good thing generally for liberal democracy you don't want someone coming in and just Really? No, I definitely agree that it's a good thing, but yeah, but I think maybe a, 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 bit, a bit more che- a, a bit like I'm talking about tepid reform because I, I don't want this to go in the wrong direction. I'm doing tepid reform on, on judicial review to make sure it's not like a politicized and it's actually unconstitutional. 
um, some tepid reform there, maybe some sort of term limits. I th- I, that, that's the reform I would consider. I, I, I think I agree with you there. I don't actually um, support term limits. That's the only regulation that I don't support because the way I see it, the Supreme Court is supposed to be a body, a body of elder wisdom, a learned body, and therefore uh, arbitrarily saying after t- after 10 or 15 years, you've got to go. I don't really think that the US would benefit from that. However, I do think the US would benefit from appointments that aren't explicitly partisan, which the Amy Coney Barrett one obvious, obviously one was in pretty much every appointment since 2000. I think another important important statistic is that until Clarence Thomas's uh, nomination, so Clarence Thomas is the only black Supreme Court justice and he was appointed uh he was appointed in the 80s, I believe. <coughs> yeah, there was um, the Anita Hill scandal as well around that time. Yeah. So until then, pretty much the entirety of the Senate would vote to affirm a Supreme Court justice. So it'll be something like 96 to 4 to affirm a justice that was clearly partisan. So that was very interesting that senators didn't try to obstruct justices from being nominated. But obviously... Um, back in October, when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, massive scandals, massive hearings, uh, very controversial votes. So I'm actually, I can't actually explain why that's happened, because it's always been political. We're just seeing the overflow of that now. Yeah, I think with with that, I mean, it's it's kind of... It's really unfortunate to see the politicization in the US of the Supreme Court, but now it's inevitable because of, I think it's it's a result of, of the power that the Supreme Court has given itself via judicial review. Um, uh, because if it didn't have the power to do that, then no one would really care. But then again, if it didn't have the power to overturn laws it deemed to be unconstitutional, what would really be the point of the Supreme Court? Um, I mean, at least politically. Um, it would still do, of course, like important cases. Um, I think what we have to be the the reason as well. I think was was accelerated the politicization of the court is the ineffectiveness of the U.S. legislature because of the filibuster and the fact that you basically can't get anything done. So you have like sixty votes. What's happened is the way people the way every every president now rules is you sign a batch of executive orders, just overturning the previous president's executive orders. You can't even do much via executive order, and then you. You can't do you can't do anything else because you'll pass something in the house and then you just won't go through the Senate. So you'll do some executive orders and then you'll maybe hope and then you you can't do anything about it. So the Supreme Court is now basically done most of the major decisions. Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade. Um, let's talk um, a lot of the the voting. But also the gay marriage passing. The gay uh, marriage Herbert versus Exactly, Herbert versus versus Oges. Um, then also there was um, a lot of the election the election like mail-in balloting laws, all of that was done by the Supreme Court, some birth control stuff by the Supreme Court as well, contraceptives, basically all like the liberal, or, or basically all, even the, the Citizens United, so the Republican one. So all the, the big the big ticket, ref, you know, reforms that the Democrats and Republicans have been pushing have now basically been done by the Supreme Court because of how ineffective the, the legislature and the presidency themselves are. So I think that what could also make, try and, you know, make, the Supreme Court a bit work a bit better would be making the legislature more work better. Yeah, what, what do you think is? I assume you then that you support getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, oh, 
Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely do. And I think there's some progressives that are like, oh, well, well what, if, what if we're in the minority? Well, that's fine because the way politics does and should work, and it's the way it works in the UK, the angle at least, is you get elected by popular mandate. The people say, okay, we're giving you both houses, do something. And if you do something and it improves their lives, you get elected again. And if you do something and it worsens their life, they'll kick you out. That's how it works. It shouldn't be minority rule. It shouldn't be that you win and then you can't, um, still govern because of some arcane rule that's by the way not even in the constitution it's just come popped out out of nowhere well not out of nowhere that's, that's long actually just to explain a uh, filibuster is where a politician decides that they know if something goes to vote they're inevitable inev- they'll inevitably lose so what they do is to it to prevent the vote from occurring they extend the debate now sometimes they extend the debate by speaking for longer on the topic but often they just they go off on a tangent, don't talk about anything relevant. So a very prominent example of this was uh, when Obamacare was going to, de- going to debate in the Senate, Ted Cruz decided to read like a very long marathon of just reading Dr. Seuss poetry. So I think for about 12 hours, he just stood Maybe there. that's why they, uh, they cancelled Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just for like ages, Dr. Uh, Ted Cruz sat st- stood there reading books like Green Eggs and Ham. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, and a lot of the time, in fact, now, they, they don't even talk. They just say, yeah, I'm filibustering, and it just the filibuster happens. Um, do, you, do you want to move on now to uh, the, uh, should I move on to the Iran? Ontario? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So for our last um, piece of, of news in, in the day, so recently a Iran nuclear facility um, has been attacked in what Iran describes as a terrorist incident. It is widely believed and basically widely admitted that it was the Israelis that carried it out. Of course, they themselves haven't admitted to it, but it's, it's pretty well known. This follows earlier in the, um, in the week, an Iranian cargo ship um, in the Red Sea was attacked by um, the Israelis. Of course, they can then say it was them. It was, of course, accused of being a, a quote-unquote spy ship by both the US and the, and the Israelis, which was, which was probably true um, to a certain extent. So... What we'll try and discuss is like the implications uh, for the wide for the wider region, and what I think is very interesting is this comes just as Biden's team has taken the uh, the first diplomatic steps to uh, renegotiate the uh, the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal. Which what basically for those who don't know, the Iran nuclear deal essentially what what it did was Iran had a bunch of sanctions put on it by the U.S. Um, in term, and they'd frozen a lot of its assets and put a lot of sanctions because of if it's pursuant of a nuclear weapons program. It's pursuant of the nuclear weapons program was said by the CIA, CIA and a bunch of other experts to be basically in self-defense because they feared Israel would attack them. So what what what, what the US and Iran agreed came to agreement was was Iran was not making nuclear weapons, and they checked that through UN uh, inspectors. And the U.S. would give back its money, Iran's money, by unfreezing their assets. So that that was working pretty well um, for for a while, uh, and Iran was complying with the deal because its economy was growing, its people getting happier. Um, and then Trump came in and falsely believed either he was mad about it because it's an Obama rhetoric, or generally because a lot of right wingers for some reason don't don't think that we should be um, engaging with Iran. Um, he pulled out of the deal, which is a violation of international law, uh, and then increased sanctions upon Iran. And then Iran were like, 
yeah, I think we're going back to making our nuclear weapons in order to pressure the US to go back to the deal because the deal was quite good for them. So Biden ran on the election that he would come back into the deal and he's now taking the first steps to come back. And Israelis, incidentally, have attacked Iran twice in the space of a week. And that is because they themselves, they don't want to, they don't want the US to be in that deal because they view Iran as an adversary and not someone you should be negotiating with. So I think they're just trying to make life harder for, for Biden. I think there's the, the implications. What do you think, Nathan? So I think the real reason why Republicans are so hesitant to engage with Iran is because, number one, because of their alliance with Saudi Arabia, primarily for economic reasons, but also because of the size of the Israeli lobby and the United States government. So for quite a long time now, um, lobbies like lobbies and organizations like APAC, which is the American-Israeli Political Action Committee, have essentially lobbied American politicians to pass, because obviously Israel is pretty much one of the only countries is is opposed by on all sides uh, by countries that are hostile to their interests and to their existence. So because of that, Israel often seeks the help of nations like the US. So Israel often lobbies American politicians to uh, send them more money and aid or to pass bills that attack their enemies. Um, so I think that's the main reason why Republicans are so cautious to engage with Iran. But also just because there's engaging with Iran is just the appearance of globalism. Um, even if it were to benefit all parties, I think a lot of people would be uh, hesitant to do something that was seen as empowering international governments. Lots of people want governments close to home and therefore they don't want any sort of uh, foreign deals of that nature. Now, my personal opinion of this is that I think it's best to say that under current circumstances, I don't think the Iran nuclear deal can ever go back to what it was before, given the sort of brash nature in which it was sort of thrown out of the window. I think there have to be completely new negotiations. We have to go completely from square one, um, potentially to something that replicates the Iran nuclear deal. Although, yeah, I think probably eventually something that uh, replicates the Iran nuclear deal, although I don't know how possible that is, given that Israel is adamantly opposed to it. I think you touched on a very interesting point, which is the um, the, the power and influence of the Israel lobby in, in the US. Of course, there's APAC and there's various other lobbying groups that are essentially arms of the of the Israeli government um, acting in, in, in their interests. And I think, yeah, I think the, the issue, there's a lot of hurdles the JCPOA, honestly, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, faces to coming back. Because in Iran, you've got moderates and high, hardliners. So the hardliners are now laughing on their high chair like, hey, we told you, moderates. Why, why engage with the US? They'll just turn your back on you. We'll just stay in. We'll, we'll keep doing our nuclear weapons and we'll keep repressing our people. So the, the hardliners, of course, in, the, in, in Iran themselves, they don't want to go back to the deal. And of course, the Israelis and the Saudi Arabians both uh, trying to increase tensions with Iran in order to stop the deal from happening because they view Iran as an adversary. Then even within the US, uh, Republicans don't want the US to go into the Iran nuclear deal. And in order, by the way, in order for any treaty to uh, be ratified by the Senate, it needs to be ratified by the Senate, which may be hard to do because there's still 50-50 Republicans and, and, and Democrats. Um, and then, of course, uh, it just Biden himself seems to be taking the, the Trump line on this, which is that 
Iran should should stop doing its nuclear weapons and then the US will go back to the deal, which is strange given the US themselves pulled out of it. So yeah, I think it, it faces a lot of hurdles. I think if where there is a will, there may be a way. And I'm not sure Biden right now is showing the will, partly because he's so focused on his own domestic politics, which is why it's sort of, you know, it's not really at the forefront of his, his mind right now. It may be slightly later on when domestic politics itself is cooled down and he has time to focus on, on foreign policy. Um, yeah, I think that... that no, I think that, it's very... I don't, I don't think Biden wants to deal with any sort of foreign affairs because on the domestic front, things are looking upwards. I mean, massive vaccinations in the US, uh, economic growth looking up, S&P 500 looking up, Dow Jones looking up. I don't think he wants to draw attention to an area in which the US isn't very strong at the moment. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of research showing that the US is about to enter the, the, a new roaring 20s, whereby a, a decade of huge economic prosperity, um, Biden's got a higher approval ratings, vaccine rollout, consumer confidence is high, you know, it's all looking up for Biden domestically, and he just wants to ride that wave. And so engaging in like messy foreign politics just isn't very appealing to him right now. So yes, it could be uh, revived if there's political will, but Biden just doesn't have the political will to do so right now. Do you want, do you think we should move on to, to, to the big question of the day? Yeah, of course. Yep. Okay. I think I'll, I'll introduce it. So our big question of the day is, Will the Iran deal ever come back? We've touched on this already. So this is just kind of, it's a really nice segue into the Iran deal. So of course, as we've said right now, um, there's a lot of pressure from all sides with regards to the Iran deal. Um, The Israelis don't want it to happen. The Saudis don't want it to happen. The hardliners in Iran don't want it to happen. The Republicans in the US don't want it to happen. The only people that want this to happen is the Democrats, Biden, and some of the moderates in Iran. And it doesn't appear that Biden has the political will to, you know, really go through these hurdles and, and try and get something done. So, yeah, Nathan, do you just want to continue our discussion, basically? So I'm of the opinion that no real, there can never really ever, there's never going to be peace and coexistence between the United States and Iran. Either Iran will, either the US will wipe Iran off the map uh, and institute a American puppet government, or Iran will destroy the state of Israel and move all American military military bases out of the Middle East and West Asia. As to which of those will happen, I do not know, but I do not see a situation in where, by where number one, Biden demonstrates lots of will and lots of and exerts lots of effort into getting this deal back, and number two, I don't see a situation in which the Iranian government accepts such a deal, given their death to America stance. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm a bit more of a, of a cherry, hopeful guy than you. You're sounding kind of pessimistic, I think. So, yeah, I think there is a possibility of peaceful coexistence between the US and Iran. And I think what we need to do is embolden the moderates in, in, in the Iran regime and try and embolden some sort of reform. And if Iran is to engage with the US and the JCPOA was the first example of real engagement with the West, we have to show that the US is a trusted ally and we can work with them. That Iran can work with the US. And then, you know, so Iran took a big step. It took its leap of faith. It trusted the US like, yeah, we'll go into this deal. And now the US just now, a couple of years ago, they, just pull, they pull out out of nowhere. And so Iran's sitting here thinking, 
that why and the hardliners are saying why should we even trust the US? Um, so I think if we if we want peaceful coexistence to happen, um, we would need to embolden the moderates and be, and that, that can only happen if we show that we're real that the US is a real ally that it, it, it can work with. I think, yeah, and I think where reform most comes is when living standards increase mostly. So I think that with if we help to lift sanctions on Iran and we improve the economy and we really try and bring it into the, the fold of the world, I don't think it, it, it's a massive... I think the Israel and Saudi Arabia, like the, although, of course, the Iran regime, don't get, don't get me wrong, I don't want to sort of sympathise with Iran, it's one of the worst regimes in the world, alongside North Korea, and it, it's repression of people, it's one of the worst, worst regimes. I don't think it's... I think genuinely that if we were to engage with it properly, that... and and try and encourage social and economic reform there, and there can be peaceful coexistence. But I think you, you could be right too, you know, why the two will happen. Yeah, well, the reason why I don't think coexistence will happen is because your your definition of coexistence also thought, sort of seems to be that Iran is liberalised, they become sort of a Western nation, and that, that necessitates removing the uh, Sharia government by force. So, so either Iran is just completely raised and a new purge, a new democratic purge is put in its place, or the opposite happens, and that's why I'm quite pessimistic. Yeah, I mean, you're right to be pessimistic. I have to be honest; it is quite a hard line, hard line regime, and similar to North Korea, it it, it really builds its its legitimacy of of the US and a hatred of the US because most of the people probably hate the regime, but the regime can just be like, yeah, the US is 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 the doer of all evils. Um and that's why you're 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 oppressed. But I do think that um there could be regime change in Iran. I doubt Biden will be the one to institute it as because as we said before, domestically he's riding very high and he doesn't really seem to want to um uh, to, to, to do so but I could see like a Ted Cruz or a, a Republican coming in next term and instituting re- regime change there um, yeah I mean what do you think uh, first of all just to give some background up until 1979 Iran was much very similar to the western nations I mean it was a monarchy but it didn't have uh, state Islam imposed upon its citizens and ever since then, they have had a theocratic government. And because and also, unlike other small nations that the US often deals with, unlike North Korea, unlike Venezuela, Iran is a serious power. So it's not a case of we can ignore them. They are, it's an absolutely massive country, uh, currently has a population of, in the, currently has a population of, 83 million so it's not just a small country that we can sort of ignore and think it's not going to have any wider implications do i think force is the best way to uh an all out all out invasion is the best way to deal with this no but the us does need to cons- need to explore military uh, preparation um i thought all their all their efforts to create sort of democratic hegemony is going to collapse. Yeah, I I I, I think I'd have to disagree with you there because I, I don't think I don't see Iran as a serious threat. I mean, it, it barely spe- it spends much less compared to other 
um, Arabic nation in terms of its military spending. Um, the US, so Israel and Saudi Arabia far bypass. It doesn't even have nuclear weapons. Of course, Israel is the only one that has nuclear weapons in, in, in the Middle East, although it, it tried to, its, it's entire pursuit of the nuclear weapons uh, domestic is just to basically get the US to lift sanctions off it in, in order to let its economy grow. So I think whilst the regime itself is a um, is a quite a you know despicable regime, I think that we could easily it could easily be disarmed as, as a threat to the US if we were just to um, allow it to exist a bit more and and not try to listen to the Israel when it comes to sort of trying to strangle it out of existence. If there's a lot of quite despicable regimes all around the world, and I think that you know. Saudi Arabia, in fact, is basically the same as is Iran when it comes to um, the oppression of its people. So I do think. Yeah, that- I mean, the only difference really is that Saudi Arabia is amicable to American economic interests. They're willing to sell things. They're willing to sell oil to the Americans, and exactly. therefore, the Americans. And therefore, they're they're deemed to be they're deemed to be fine. Um, did you have anything more to say on on this topic? Well. I think I'll just close with this. Since the end of World War II, America has come to the forefront as the world's sole superpower. Unlike the British Empire of old, it's not a uh, colonial government. They aren't sending colonial officers overseas to sit in the palaces of Tehran and Pyongyang and Caracas. However, they have tried to set up military bases in efforts to push governments in certain directions military bases in order to push governments in a certain direction. How sustainable is this? We'll find out. And I think I think that'll be the key question. How sustainable is this sort of military base uh, rule of law? Yeah, I um yeah, I agree. I think that brings us to a close. Yeah, um I think yeah thanks you guys for tuning in to our latest episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. The links are um, in our bios wherever you're watching it. Catch catch us on Spotify, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, wherever else. See you guys next week.